Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am here in person with my co-host. That's right. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh, I had an affair with your mother. <laughs> Man, we have just... So... Nobody, nobody yet probably has listened to our bonus episode from last season, but uh, we're getting a lot of discussion of uh, unfortunate things with my family members well, here. Jason. It's nothing personal, Josh. It, for one, it's over. Okay, and two, just just let's let's stop. Whatever I mean, two is, I don't want to hear. It's it. It's just relevant to this film. It is. I it always, is, you know, try is, to yes, put something yes, relevant. No, that was that was the film. Totally responsible of you. <laughs> yeah, and this this is. Uh, we are kicking off our eighth season. Bang, bang, bang. Boop, 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 boop. With those noises. <laughs> we are going uh, the furthest back yet we've gone in film history. We are talking about the films of 1967. The first year ever for movies. Yes, exactly. No, I'm True. excited because I think, you know, as we've, as we've gone through this show, I'm always pushing for us to look back and we're trying to balance that with more recent stuff that maybe listeners are more familiar with and that we're more familiar with too. And it's fun to talk about. Yeah. And I, what is exciting about this is obviously this is a year before all of us were born. And um, I really like seeing what themes reveal themselves as the year plays out when we did 1977, which is uh, of course also before we were born, that seemed to be, you know, a pinnacle blockbuster year. So let's see what 1967 brings. My thinking is it's going to be a big year for the French. That it is. And uh, and, it, and it's sort of a turning point in the development of new Hollywood. It's interesting. This is the final year that the Hayes Code was enforced, uh, although it was not very strongly enforced. But uh, the MPAA rating system that we are all familiar with started in 1968. Ugh. So, uh, well, which was better than the Hayes Code where everything just had to conform to the same standards. And at least with the rating system, there's the possibility of more adult, more explicit content with with a higher rating. So Yeah, but the MPAA, get out of here, MPAA. No one needs you anymore. I'm just saying that, you know, it's better than a standard in which no film can do anything that doesn't meet the overall general audience standard, which was the case for the Hays Code and especially in the 40s and the 50s and the early 60s, and less so as we get here to the late 60s. But my point being is that it's a turning point there where all of these new artistic voices are coming in in Hollywood and are influenced by those European films as you're talking about, French films and others, and Hollywood finally sort of relents and allows that greater range of artistic expression. And boobies. (laughs) No, I know what you mean, boobies, cursing, uh, you know, the use of uh, adult material uh, to tell your stories in a different right, way. Right, yeah. or even just themes. You know, for years, the, 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 the production code wouldn't even allow criminals to go unpunished in films. Right. That's, you know, it's insane. But if you watch movies from the 40s, that's always where they're sort of contorting the plot yeah, to make sure like, that they get their come up. Spoiler alert, the entire decade. For, exactly, <laughs> that whole decade. So I'm just saying this is an interesting turning point year for film. Oh, and Josh, let me, let me be fair boobies and dongs that is and butts so fair (laughs) so with all that in mind as we do in every season we're starting uh with the box office champion of the year and that is the graduate yes is also amazing because imagine a movie like this being the number one movie at the box office in 2020 imagine a movie like this getting a theatrical release in 2021 huh insane (laughs) it is but this was um the highest grossing it's, it's hard like box office figures uh pre the 1980s are, are sort of uh not an exact science so this movie was actually released in december 1967 and grossed mo- made most of its money later but it did gross uh 104.7 million probably uh worldwide um which in 1967 is just an insane amount of yeah, money so it's, it's, it's like 850 million yeah it's 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 huge it's astounding that a movie like this made that much uh, on its budget of $3 million, which, uh, again, in 1967 is a lot more, but still comparatively. And a first-time film director. Second time. 
Oh, this was a second uh, film? Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Okay, you got his me first there. film. Yeah, oh. but certainly an untested, yes. relatively and a, untested. And a, uh, oh, now he's a megastar, but uh, again, an untested star as well. Right, right. I mean, this was a gamble, I think, for the producers. And, and Mike Nichols, who's the director here, was, I believe, signed to make this movie before he made Virginia Woolf. So he, he was a first-time director when he was there you uh, go. signed That's for That's what I meant, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but certainly, Dustin Hoffman wasn't a big star. And, and Jason, I know you like to talk about alternate casting. Maybe we'll get to this later. But a lot of bigger stars were considered for this and didn't end up in the movie. And many roles. Lots yes. of big stars. Yes, considered. but especially for that lead role uh, that Dustin Hoffman took on. So, yeah, a huge hit and uh, an acclaimed film. It was nominated for seven Oscars. Uh, for Best Picture, Best Director for Mike Nichols, which he won. That was the only Oscar it won. Uh, also, Best Actor for Dustin Hoffman, Best Actress for Anne Bancroft, Best Supporting Actress for Catherine Ross, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. And I think deservingly in most of those categories. And it did win Best Picture at the Golden Globes and at the BAFTAs and a bunch of other awards, too. It's highly acclaimed. Yeah, it's one of the most acclaimed films of all time. Yes. But Will it be acclaimed here on Awesome Movie? That is the most important thing. Mm. <laughs> Will it be acclaimed here? So yes, it was. And interestingly, it's, it's also very interesting, especially as we're looking this far back, to read the contemporary reactions to it and how it was kind of radical in some ways. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the word radical because like you just said with the, the uh, exiling of the Hayes Code into this, like this is, I'm not going to say revolutionary, but it's so different, right? Like, things that might seem like commonplace to us today. This is going to be a challenge of this season is like contextualizing it when it came out. Like it was probably stuff that a lot of people you couldn't uh, or wouldn't have seen on the screen before, like you said. Yeah. And I think it was as, as these reviews, a lot of them mentioned, it was heavily influenced by these European films that were being kind of trickling into the U S at the time. And that filmmakers were looking at and, and Hollywood filmmakers were starting to look at and starting to emulate. Another cool thing about 1967, uh, sort of a through line for us through all of our seasons, is that we always quote Roger Ebert. And 1967 was the first year that Roger Ebert was working as a film critic. So we'll uh, hear some of his earliest youthful reactions to films. All right, let's get to yeah. it. Yeah. So Roger Ebert said, The Graduate, the funniest American comedy of the year, is inspired by the free spirit which the young British directors have brought into their movies. It is funny, not because of sight gags and punchlines and other tired rubbish, but because it has a point of view. That is to say, it is against something. Comedy is naturally subversive, no matter what Doris Day thinks. Mike Nichols stays on top of his material. He never pauses to make sure we're getting the point. He never explains for the slow-witted. He never apologizes. The Graduate is a success, and Benjamin's acute honesty and embarrassment are so accurately drawn that we hardly know whether to laugh or to look inside ourselves. You can do both. <laughs> you can, and I'm sure Ebert did. Doris Day was one of the names who was campaigning for Mrs. Robinson at one point, if I'm not mistaken. But the nudity, I think she said, was a no-go. Yeah, Doris her. Day was notoriously wholesome. I don't think she ever was even willing to swear. Mm. Well, then this would not have been a good no, choice. No, it would have been her. a very poor choice for her. Uh yeah, so those were uh, two points. British, that was the other thing I wanted to mention. An area of cinema that I really have to dig into at some point are these kind of, and we mentioned this on another episode, I don't remember which one, but these kind of British comedies of the 50s and 60s. I know so very little about them. That's a real dark spot in my uh, film knowledge. What can you tell me about them? Yeah, well, I think he's referencing, he actually does explicitly elsewhere in this review um, reference some movies of the time. And the ones I can remember were um, The Knack, which I'm not familiar with, and, and A Hard Day's Night, which I have seen. So Richard, yeah. Richard Lester, a big director of that. And I think he's less referring to, you know, sort of like Ealing comedies and that kind of stuff from the 50s uh, British film and more that stuff like Richard Lester stuff that was driven by like the British invasion. And, uh, but I'm not super familiar with a ton of those films either. So well, I have seen a hard day's night. Um, and this is better than that. Well, um, good for you. Thank you. Yes. I mean, that's not really that good for me. It's an <laughs> extremely well-known film starring some of the most famous musicians of all time. The knack. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if the knack is named after that movie. I don't know. 
So, I mean, but it's interesting to me also, like, as you're saying, how how revolutionary the style is and the way that people respond to it. Ebert embraces it. He, this is a very positive review, and he likes that this movie is doing something different. Yes, but Josh, I, I know you're going to go to the other side. Ebert does revisit this years later and kind of temper his initial review. Yes, but not because he feels like this movie is too stylistically bold. And I think... Does, it's it's important to remember that Ebert was young at this time, and the sort of critical establishment was maybe less open yeah. to this this boldness. So A. D. Murphy in Variety said, "Had the story been told in terms of straight drama, it would have been one of those boring modern Mellers, the hippie equivalent of a woman's pick, in which vacant stares are supposed to convey emotion and plot action, and jazzed up cinematics become obvious and pretentious." To be sure, Nichols, in his second feature film, has laid on with a trowel most of the current gimmicks, but thanks to a strong script, they are not noticeable for most of the film. So he's just so off base in many ways there. Yeah, Josh, why don't you take that whole thing about the women's <laughs> Well, I think I think what he's trying to say, I don't know what a Meller is, a modern Meller, but I think what he's trying to say is that this could be, or, you know what, actually, I think what he means is melodrama. That may be like I was variety speak, yeah, for melodrama. Yeah. So yeah, I think what he's saying is that this could be played like a like a Douglas Sirk movie or something, where it's heightened emotions and and yeah, and melodrama, but that it is in fact done with this level of lightness and comedy, which I think is true, even though he's being very condescending in the way he says that. But the idea that the style of this movie is somehow gimmickry yeah. or that it distracts from the story, I think is completely wrong. You're 100% right. And I think it shows just how far ahead of the time Mike Nichols was, right? Like, yeah. And I mean, like, it'd be easy to pile on this review, but I really think this guy just didn't get it because Mike Nichols was just so, I mean, his abilities to work with actors and uh, and his ability um, to shoot things to maximum effect are like he's a master, right? He's one of the major figures and deservedly so. So I just think he was just so far ahead of uh, where this reviewer was in cinema that he it just went all over his head. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in variety, of course, is like the, you know, the Bible of the industry is is a conservative kind of uh not conservative politically, but in terms of uh, protecting the established style or whatever. So it's not surprising that something like this comes from them at this time. But it's interesting, too, uh, a critic who's known for being a little more forward thinking, uh, Andrew Saris in The Village Voice, was also not crazy about the style. He said, the emotional elevation of the film is due in no small measure to the extraordinarily engaging performances of Anne Bancroft as the wife, mother, mistress, Dustin Hoffman as the lumbering Lancelot, and Catherine Ross as his fair Elaine. Mike Nichols is at his best in getting new reading out of old lines and thus lightening potential heavy scenes. The director is at his worst when the eclecticism of the visual style gets out of hand. Unfortunately, the cultural climate is such that the intelligent prose cinema of Mike Nichols tries to become the intellectual poetic cinema of Michelangelo Nichols. Still, I was with The Graduate all the way because I responded fully to its romantic feelings. The Graduate is moving precisely because its hero passes from premature maturity to an innocence regained, an idealism reconfirmed. That he is so much out of his time and place makes him more of an individual and less of a type. Even the overdone caricatures that surround the three principles cannot diminish the cruel beauty of this love story. Mm. So he's really into the story and the characters and is really quite condescending again about the style. I think he's, you know, he's referencing, I assume, like Michelangelo Antonioni yeah. uh, as sort of someone Mike Nichols shouldn't emulate. But I, again, I think Nichols does a great job with it. It's so important to uh, everything, you know, like some of those iconic shots, like, you know, when Benjamin kind of realizes what's going on and we're seeing it through Mrs. Robinson's leg, like that shot is how many times has that been emulated, right? The underwater stuff, which is symbolic of where Benjamin is. I mean, dude, like Nichols, I, I mean, and something I noticed this time, which I didn't notice the first time is that that dinner party or the party that they throw for Ben at the beginning, the parents, and he's just kind of swirling around the room and you pass Mrs. Robinson on the couch and you, she just looks so bored and you don't even, 
having never seen it and never been introduced to that character, I didn't even realize it, but so smart. So smart the way he moves the camera. Yeah, the visual style in this movie is amazing. And the, the editing, especially in the, in the montages, sort of in the middle or the first third of the movie where we see Benjamin's ennui um, and, and the way he cuts between him in the hotel room with Mrs. Robinson yeah. and then him at home. And it's just, I didn't write down the editor's name. And I think, it's, is it Sam Osteen as the editor, I think? Uh, yeah, um, Dave. <laughs> but the editing in this movie is 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 amazing and that's certainly something that's got to yeah. be influenced by like the french new way he's got that transition where ben is putting his head down like uh after sex into like him putting his head down in the pool and everything and it's just it's incredible like and uh, uh, dude like the cinematography is easily one of the major strengths of this film and uh that was robert l surtees who was nominated for best uh cinematography he lost to Burnett Guffey Bonnie and Clyde no one's gonna fault him on that right but Surtees had this quote that I marked down which said uh it took everything I had learned over 30 years to be able to do the job I knew that Mike Nichols was a young director who went in for a lot of camera we did more things in this picture than I ever did in one film which I think you know none of it you know, use the word gimmickry. None of it's gimmicked. It's all there for a reason. Right, right. And I think this is on the face of it, not like if you just read a script or read the plot summary, you wouldn't think of this as a movie that would be visually inventive and striking in that way because it's just about people's relationships. But the way that they approach that is a huge part of what makes this a good movie. Yeah, so a later Mike Nichols film, which I thought was close to perfect there's one or two things that bothered me about it was closer which is based on a play and it all is just basically people talking in rooms and i was blown away by how nichols moved the camera in such mundane situations to keep things interested in elevating the story so i just think he's just one of the best at doing it right and you know when we did 77 and we talked about woody allen and those moving masters, you can see the influence of Mike Nichols on things like that. Yeah. And Woody Allen, I did not write this quote down, but I saw it somewhere. And he said that uh, Nichols was like the greatest director of comedy or something like that. I um, think that's fair. Yeah. You know. So I'll just misquote Woody Allen there. So that's all right. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but you're right. I mean, it's, 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 it's so important the way that he uses the camera in this movie. And if it wasn't put together that way, I think it wouldn't be as good. And maybe some of the character beats and some of the comedy wouldn't come across the way that they do. Um, and, and the emotion, the awkwardness, the uncomfortability, the uncertainty, it's all there with the way he uses the camera. Yeah, this movie is so uncomfortable. I mean, I forgot how this movie is like, at times this movie is curb your enthusiasm levels of uncomfortable, I think. Yeah. Which it does really, really well you know, makes it hard to watch in a fascinating way. The tons of long takes in this movie too, that he just holds the camera. I love that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's really quite impressive. So Jason, you're obviously indicating that you had seen this. Yeah. Movie I've seen it before. Um, you know, you just, it's one of those, you got to check off the box, right? Check off right. the list. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I had only seen it once before. Yeah, I saw it too. And I think it was when I was in college at some point, I don't remember specifically the circumstances, but definitely just for the reasons you're saying too. This is a, a hugely important film, something to see. And I think we were talking about this uh, in reference to something else, that a lot of times watching these big classic movies that have these massive reputations, I feel like it's a bit of a letdown just because there's no way that any movie is going to be as, as amazing as these kinds of reputations. But then being able to come back to it another time and already having had that first experience and having had your expectations kind of uh, punctured or whatever is almost easier to appreciate. I don't know if you find it like, like, that way at all. I actually thought the opposite this oh, time. All right. I liked it, but then we can talk about that in the next segment. I liked it better the first time and I will give you my reasons for that, but let's let Dave. All right, Dave, Dave, did you watch this one ever before? I'm almost certain this is one of those movies that my parents made me watch way too young. When you were six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, this and, right. and all those And Woody then they Allens introduced and... you to their friend. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yes. But uh, no, that, that would have been the last time, though. Yeah. I haven't seen it as like an adult until just now. So. Yeah. So, Dave, what did you think of the 
controversial camera work here. <laughs> well, I, I don't I don't know that I thought it was like that particularly show off or anything, but I did think that the whole thing you could kind of just tell that it was something new that was going on with everything happening on screen. It still feels new in a lot of ways, I think. It's so original the way he shoots. Yeah, and I think a lot of again, movies like this aren't really usually shot in that way they're usually shot in a lot more simple straightforward fashion because directors are more just concerned with capturing performance and with the dialogue and the character interactions and they'll just say hey let's just over the shoulder shot reverse shot for all these scenes which isn't not not necessarily bad if you've got great characters and well-written dialogue and good actors and you're just fascinated by those interactions but i think it does add something here i agree it adds a lot yeah so uh anything else to add on the background here i mean obviously there's a ton this is a landmark film but anything important you want to mention uh i think we should probably mention paul simon here right well yeah. right yes it's uh, an essential aspect of this film yeah, the soundtrack's a big yes. deal sold millions of two over two million copies here and uh has that little song mrs robinson that uh maybe you've heard once or twice yeah. and it uses sound of silence scarborough scarborough fair so a lot of uh, big Simon and Garfunkel songs. Right. And Simon and Garfunkel were initially, those songs were just placeholders as they were editing the film. And Mike Nichols was such a huge fan. He decided he wanted to use them. And they attempted to get Paul Simon to write new music for yeah. this. He was supposed to write three. And he wrote one song from what I read. And then he had this thing. Uh, it was called Mrs. Roosevelt. And he played it and he was like, no, it's called Mike Nichols is like, it's called Mrs. Robinson and it's in the movie. now." Right. Yeah, and the so. songs that he wrote for the movie, they didn't use. There you go. So, so, but it worked out well. It's, it's, you can't imagine this movie without those Simon and Garfunkel yeah, songs. Yeah. Very important. Yes, so. absolutely. And also that was kind of new and revolutionary at the time too, using pop music as a soundtrack, which of course, when we get to 1984, we talked about. We did, but this yeah. is, this is really where that begins. And it was, it, although that wasn't mentioned nearly as much as the, the revolutionary camera work. Um, and in Ebert's review, actually, that was one of the things that he didn't like, but not because it was some new thing, but he just he didn't seem to like the songs. But other mentions were, were just kind of in passing. So maybe didn't seem as revolutionary yeah. at the time, but it turned out to be very influential. You, you know you're influential when you have so many things that are really influential that one of the most influential things isn't even barely Right, mentioned. people barely even notice it, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So we'll come back in a moment and talk our general thoughts on The Graduates. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this premiere of our season on the films of 1967, we are talking about the box office champion, The Graduate. And I don't know if we need to like summarize the plot here. I feel like this is fairly well known. Here, I'll do it real fast, right? Ben... Comes back from college, doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. Has an affair with his father's partner's wife, business partner's wife, not life partner's wife. Exactly. Mrs. Robinson, played by the great Anne Bancroft. Then uh, that kind of falls apart. She does not want him to ever take out her daughter, Elaine. But his parents keep kind of pushing him in that direction. And, you know, he tries to uh, sabotage the date, but then falls in love with her. And it kind of goes from there in the second half. Yes, it does. And I mean, we, we can spoil it. Um, you know, I, I, one of the most iconic things about this movie is its ending. Yeah. I feel people feel like people are familiar with that, even if they don't really know that much about the movie. Um, but, uh, you know, he ends up with Elaine in the end. But for how long? That's, right. well, that's the genius of that last shot. Right? Yeah, that is that is great. And one of the things also that was fascinating to me, and I feel like this was the case, too, in even in 1984 or 77, reading reviews of this movie. Critics in the past did not care about spoiling the movie. Mm. At least two of the reviews that I picked up here summarize the entire plot of the movie all the way through to the end. Well, I guess that, you know, yes, because spoiler alert wasn't always a part of our our vernacular. Right. Right. So, right. um, Yeah, I could see that as a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I actually I even remember like as a kid looking through newspapers and stopping to stopping reading certain reviews because they were giving too much away now thankfully they just give them away in the previews for the movie yeah Yeah, but i mean i feel like people would go nuts right now because this movie does have it's not plot twists but certainly unexpected developments and i think people would go crazy these days if a review just laid it all out for a movie like this so josh i think it's clear that you like this one more than i do and it's a little crazy to me because i feel like i should love this movie right yeah and um where it lost me this time 
it, I love the first 45, 50 minutes. Where it lost me is the Elaine date and everything thereafter, right? Because it went from someone making logical decisions to someone to no one making logical decisions. And it felt untrue. And I know the script gets so much love. Um, and Buck Henry is a, you know, very acclaimed writer and performer. And Nichols is, of course, a, a theater director, a writer, a, you know, a producer. And uh, so I just don't know how it, how people just overlook these things, you know, and maybe it's a thing of time and place. But there were things like, like even the, even the first date that they have, right, where he goes to sabotage it and she's embarrassed. He takes her to a strip club. He's driving fast. He's ignoring her. And then she like leaves a strip club, like in a, in, you know, a huff and like, oh, I can't believe this. And he just stops her and he kisses her. And then she's like, oh, okay. You know, like now that you kissed me, everything's cool. Like that would seem like she would punch him in the stomach and be like, get the F away from me at that point, you know? That really, that really kind of took me out of it at that point. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you in that his relationship with Elaine requires a lot of leaps that aren't necessarily quite there. I will say that the idea that the characters are behaving illogically is maybe part of the point, and that this is a movie about a person who is, in fact, quite emotionally immature, yeah. as one of these reviews points out, and you're not necessarily supposed to think that Benjamin is making the best choices yeah. for himself. Yeah, no, and I'm fine with that. And But I'm saying, like, uh, maybe illogical is not the right word, because you're right in, in your defense in that way. What I'm saying is, like, I don't think some of the decisions were true to the uh, grounded world that was set up, right? Like, I believe this affair that he had and I believe that the self-hatred involved with it. And I believe the disgust where she doesn't want him to take out uh, Elaine, you know, where Mrs. Robinson doesn't want to take out the daughter. And I believe that he also feels that he's probably not good enough for her. But it's just when he kisses her, I don't understand why she just goes with it, right? And then, you know, he follows her up to Berkeley and he's like, I'm going to marry her. And he tells his parents, but don't tell, don't tell the Robinsons. And it's like, at some point you would think word has to get back to the Robinsons in some way. Well, I mean, it does. Cause eventually Mr. Robinson shows up in Berkeley and threatens him. Yeah. But I mean, at that point we've already gone to this, uh, extreme and getting back to this Elaine character who, I mean, if you look at it in today's standards must have incredible, uh, self-worth issues here because of what she puts up with. Right. After all of this stuff, she wants to take Ben back. And then, of course, the most uncomfortable thing is like Mrs. Robinson tells Elaine that Ben raped her. And then Ben's like, nah, I didn't rape her. Uh, we had a consensual affair. And then Elaine's like, OK, everything's cool, right? There are, there are so many issues I have with that. Like, it's a horrible thing for her to do. And I can't see just Elaine being like, oh, well, if you say so, it's your word against my mom's. So I'll just go with your word. It would seem like there had to be a lot they'd have to work out at that point, you know? Yeah, I mean, to me, the biggest failing is that we just don't understand Elaine as a character, that she is barely sketched out. I mean, she doesn't show up until more than halfway through the movie. And I think, as you're saying, it does a really good job of establishing the relationship between Benjamin and Mrs. Robinson, that you believe this affair and the way that they're connected. And there's that great scene towards the middle where they're in bed and he's insisting that they talk yeah. and she doesn't want to and the lights go on and off. And that's another one of those scenes that shot the bulk of it in a single take and just the way that it's constructed where it gets dark and then it's light and the where the camera stays and you can sometimes see there's a great shot at one point where he's, Benjamin is kind of prodding Mrs. Robinson to reveal something about herself. And he's He's naive and he doesn't understand the sort of emotional journey that she's been on in her life when she's talking about having been an art major. And he's like, oh, I guess you just kind of gave that up. And Anne Bancroft has this great moment of, of her facial expression where you can see, even though there's no dialogue from Mrs. Robinson, all of the sort of sacrifices that she's made in her life to be this suburban housewife. And there's so much depth to that character, even without her saying a lot, that I feel like it's it makes the Elaine character worse because there's no depth to that character. And things like you're saying, like, why would she believe Benjamin over her mother if he just says, oh, no, she's wrong. He didn't. She didn't. I didn't rape her. We don't know why she would believe him or or who she would believe or what she would do, because we don't know anything about and her. Even if she did believe him. Right. And 
just for her to be like, well, you had an affair with my mom, but, and ruined my dad's life, but we're cool now. You know, like, um, I do want to say when you're talking about shots and, and their emotional impact, the reveal of when Elaine finds out from Ben with Mrs. Robinson in the background, who he had the affair with. And we kind of get that, uh, over the shoulder shot with her just standing there is like, man, that's just, that's just as good as it gets right there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and so much of the emotional content comes in that the the shot setup in the 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 visual construction of the film, which is going yeah. back to why that's so important. I just think that like it, it it was just firing so hard until she came into the story. But I and I liked the conceit of it. I think there's certain things that they that like from a story standpoint I like, but I just it just all kind of uh, became, uh, it wasn't standing on sturdy legs at that point for me. Yeah, I mean, I think you're not wrong about any of that stuff. I think I bought into it more because I was already invested and because I was looking at it as the perspective of Benjamin is not a good person and is not a smart person, really, and is making poor is impulsive choices here. Yeah, no one really. And his parents seem all right, I guess. Um, oh, if a bit oblivious. Right? Yes, they're certainly oblivious. That is true. but. I, I agree. And I think on, on both levels that even though Benjamin, of course, is the most well-developed character, I mean, he is the main character, but I think in his relationship with Mrs. Robinson, you can see their connection. You can see the investment that he has in it, but you can't see it with Elaine. Not only do you not understand where Elaine is coming from, but when he says he goes from their one date to I'm going to marry her, yeah. you're like, why? Why do you want to marry Elaine? Like, what is it? that I, you know, you don't get it. It feels like one of those, you know, 1940s melodramas where the characters say, I love you at the end of having known each other for an hour. I agree. There's, there are jumps and you're like, there's something missing here in a beat that I need to get from A to C. Where's point B in this, uh, you know, kind of journey here. Right. But at the same time, I feel like in a lot of ways, the ending makes up for that because as they're sitting on the bus at the end and he's done all of these horribly ill-advised, impulsive things. And we're like, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing these? And she has too. And you, you know, you remember they're both the same age. They're, she may be even a year or two younger because she's still in college. They're both young. They're both impulsive. And when you get that final shot or the second to last shot of them sitting on the bus, which th that iconic moment of them going from glee to what the hell have we done? Yeah. I think that makes up for a lot of it because you're like, oh, they also realize that they've made illogical choices and they haven't thought this through. The last 10 minutes are as good as any, you know, kind of run to the airport scene as there is, right? Where we got to have the big ending and the big reveal and the big I love you and uh, the energy and the electricity and the frenetic pace of it is is just great. What What I didn't need was like, I'm driving back to Pasadena. Now I'm driving back to Berkeley. Now I'm driving to uh, Santa Barbara. That was a bit just mishmashy to get there. I guess, but I think it sort of tries to emphasize the ridiculous lengths that he's going to in order to get her and to do it in time. So, I mean, I was okay with that. And that's something that's been parodied a, a lot. Right. I mean, the whole film's been parodied well, or true. homaged a lot. Yes, yes. But especially, I don't know, especially that sequence. But yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think maybe... I'm not on the level of acclaim that this movie gets from a lot of people. Although, as you're sort of alluding to with Ebert, it has been reevaluated in some ways in, in a slightly more negative light. But I'm not as all in on it as some people are. I think I have maybe fewer reservations than you do, but I think all of your concerns there are completely valid. Yeah, again, and it's difficult for us, and it's going to be the whole season, is putting it in the historical context of like what a revelation this film was at the time and just how different it was than uh, everything that, you know, was leading up to it. Right. And I, I do think, as we're saying, you can see some of that because some of that is even now, again, is not the way you would approach a movie like this typically. And you can see how brilliant it is. And some of those cuts, again, especially I think that montage of the sort of, uh, listlessness of Ben as he goes between the hotel room with Mrs. Robinson to lying in the pool at his house is still just brilliant. I mean, yeah. watching it now, I was just like, this is amazing. Talking about things that we've seen over and over in film and, you know, kind of referenced as an homage point that the pool stuff is, you know, 
I mean, I always think of Rushmore with Bill Murray throwing the balls in there, but, and Wes Anderson, clearly a Mike Nichols fan, right? Uh, maybe more than anyone, I think you see uh, that influence in Wes Anderson. But yeah, I agree with you, Josh, on that. And I, like I said, first 45, 50 minutes, I'm like, it's almost flawless, right? And then it just, I think it lets itself down in the writing more than anything else. Uh, yeah. Which is tough for me to say. <laughs> right. Now it does. I mean, and I think as much as I, you know, Catherine Ross was nominated for an Oscar alongside Hoffman and Bancroft, and she's a good actor, but there's nothing to that character. Right. But we can't fault her for that. No, she but does didn't... she deserve an Oscar nomination for it? Uh, let's see. I'll tell you <laughs> who else was nominated there in 1967. I did write it down, Josh. All right. So 1967, supporting actress. Uh, I only wrote down that Estelle Parsons won for Bonnie and Clyde. So she was good. So, you know, yeah, Bonnie fun. and Clyde coming up again. And of course, um, you know, deservedly winning whatever. But uh, my my point isn't that other people were more deserving, even if maybe they were, it's just that there's nothing there that makes you think that this is a great performance. It's because there's not much to the character. Well, yeah, maybe it was just that, you know, the one, like you said, it was the biggest box office and two, like the kind of rapturous kind of feeling of like, you know, bring everyone to the dance. So to speak. Right, right. And that does happen with the momentum of something that's just such a sensation that everything gets swept up in it. Yeah, Certainly. I'm looking right now at the uh, actor nominations and and uh, man, uh, Rod Steiger won for In the Heat of the Night and the other nominees with Hoffman were Warren Beatty, Paul Newman and Spencer Tracy. It's like, Jesus. <laughs> when, when do we have a list of actor nominees that are like those kinds of I mean, I guess we don't know. We can say now that those those people are such icons you know maybe we don't yeah realize, i mean but... and the actress the the actress nominees uh, along with Anne bancroft faye dunaway audrey hepburn Catherine hepburn and edith evans who i'm not as familiar with what movie is that edith evans is in uh dave will have to look that up for us but uh i don't know her as yeah i'm not know, familiar but, with her either but... but yeah the other four the other four in that category are just you know, icons, right? Right. Now. And I think like in a weird way, that list, a list that includes Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn and Audrey Hepburn, but also Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman yep. and Faye Dunaway really shows you what a turning point this right. year was. It's a bridge to that kind of new late 60s, uh, early 70s cinema. That It was right. The Whisperers, by the way. Whisperers? Yeah. I'm not familiar with that movie. Okay. So Josh, of the other, of the other big ones, you know, Best Picture, uh, in the heat of the night one, Bonnie and Clyde, Dr. Doolittle, guess who's Oof. coming to dinner were the other ones, you know? Yeah. So. Well, I don't know what Dr. Doolittle's doing in there. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think this movie deserved those other nominations and, and, you know, whatever one was probably deserved. Um, but Mike Nichols winning best director is absolutely another. No problem. Uh, yeah. That. Deserved winning. So, yeah. One other thing that I find fascinating that I wanted to talk about with this movie is the ages of the actors. Right. right. <laughs> so Dustin Hoffman was 30, which is not entirely surprising. He looks very young though. Right? He looks young and someone who's 30 playing someone who's 21 is something that still happens quite often. Right. And Catherine Ross was 27. So that's also fairly common. But Anne Bancroft, was 36 in this movie. So not only is she only six years older than Dustin Hoffman, but I don't know how old Mrs. Robinson is supposed to be. I don't know if we're supposed to think that 36-year-olds are, are sort of put out to pasture. Maybe we are, <laughs> but um, it's just fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, he does look at that 22-ish age. And I mean, you know, if you, she said she got pregnant when she was in college, right? So, and if her daughter is 20 and she's playing 40, 41, then a 41 year old and a 22 year old, you could see that. Maybe they aged her up a little with makeup or whatever. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did because she's a movie star. She's not going to look like a 40 year old housewife anyway. Yeah. Gina just messaged me, hey, I'm 37. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and That's, you know, uh, Dave's old bat wife thing. Right. Yeah. Dave, are you concerned about Gina having affairs with uh, younger college students? If that's what she needs. You know. <laughs> there you go. Right. But I just think it's, I mean, and also, again, even if we're like, okay, maybe she's close to that age, the fact that she's only six years older than Dustin right. Hoffman, and even the other supporting characters, uh, William Daniels, who plays Benjamin's father, it was 40. He's only 10 years older yeah. than Dustin Hoffman. Murray Hamilton was 44, who plays Mr. Robinson. And uh, Elizabeth Wilson, the oldest of the sort of adult stars who plays uh, Benjamin's mother, was 46. But all of them 
not appropriately really old enough to be the parents of these characters. Kind of interesting that he made that work and, you know, he, he cast based on abilities and what he thought he could get away with. And he did. Right. So, and I don't think you like watching this movie. I wasn't like, this is wrong. These people don't look the right age necessarily. It was really only because I was thinking about William Daniels, who's still, still alive. Young. Boy meets world. Girl right. meets world. Mr. Feeney. Exactly. Knight Rider. And- Kit. And I thought, there's no way he's that much older than Dustin Hoffman and is still alive. And then I started looking all of these up. Yeah, so Dun- Dustin Hoffman, who got paid like $17,500 for this movie and had to go on unemployment afterwards, right? The, you know, the, the, the big names were, of course, Redford, Warren Beatty, Charles Grodin uh, almost got it. And then the one I found interesting, Burt Ward, from, uh, who played Robin. <laughs> And the, the story with Redford is like, you know, everyone's like, oh, right, you know, you, you should have it. And Mike Nichols is like, no one's ever going to believe that you would have trouble getting a woman. So he didn't. So we didn't do that. Right. And then Mrs. Robinson, literally every big yeah, name that you can imagine. List, right. Yeah. So Sophia Loren, Lauren Bacall, Audrey Hepburn, Geraldine Page, you know, I could go on and on. Even Reese Saint, Ava Gardner, Doris Day, Lana Turner. And then Elaine. Patty Duke, Natalie Wood, Sally Field, Shirley MacLaine, Goldie Hawn. That would have been maybe interesting. At that point. Yeah, or Sally maybe. Field. Maybe Sally Field would have right. been. Yeah, so. I feel like Sally Field maybe could have. Because I think the thing with that character is that just you need the performance to bring more than there yeah. is in the writing. Yeah, and I also think Candace Bergen, who was up for it, because, um, you know, she, she did some a lot of interesting work back then. Yeah, well, she worked with Mike Nichols soon after this in Carnal Knowledge, which she's great in. Yeah. So, and then uh, the Murray Hamilton uh, character, Mr. Robinson. Gene Hackman, if you want to talk about people close in age, right? Right. He was originally cast, but I think he left to go do, was it Bonnie and Clyde he went and did? Or I'm not sure. Either that or Butch and Sundance. Yeah. Maybe it was Butch and Sundance. I don't know. And then, you know, Brando, George Pippard. See, these are this is the one that seems tough to me. I can't see Brando playing that role. I can't see Frank Sinatra playing that role. And then Walter Matthau and Jack Palance, those all seem like odd choices for that. Yeah. And it's, again, that whole age thing. And and I saw you mentioned Natalie Wood, that Natalie Wood was considered both for Elaine and for Mrs. Robinson. She should have played them both. (laughs) That That would have been been something. Yeah. Let's talk about revolutionary filmmaking techniques. Oh, yeah. What what did you think of Mr. Robinson's confrontation scene with Ben when he finally kind of tracked him down in Berkeley? I don't know if I would have been as cool about everything. So. Well, he's quite angry, as he should be, really. Even though, you know, we've, we've, it's been made clear that, you know, their marriage is really is over. And it's the kind of marriage that maybe if it wasn't 1967, if it was 30 years later or whatever, they would have been divorced already because, you know, there's there's no love there. They don't even sleep in the same room. And so... I think in that sense, when there's first having the affair, it's easy to excuse. Like she's getting something from Ben that she's not getting at home and that her husband doesn't want to give her. But certainly the way Benjamin goes through and wrecks that whole family, like he's he's justifiably pissed off. And I think he's almost like a non-character. Like we don't consider him really. He's just kind of like a goofy background presence. For most of the movie and so i think it's good to have that moment where it's like oh yeah he would actually care about this yeah uh here's a fun piece of trivia so that you know norman fell plays the landlord there always playing landlords yeah norman fell. company right yeah and he's got like a bunch of like college kids you know living there and um you know when the when elaine screams they all go up to the room and one of them says i'll call the cops who played that character that i do not know Ladies and gentlemen, it was me, Sir Richard Dreyfus, in one of my earliest film roles. <laughs> Man, I wow. missed that, but I'm so glad that we got the Richard Dreyfus impression to return. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, but one other thing th- that I want to mention here, as, and Ebert says this in his review, this is a comedy. This is a funny movie, especially yeah. the first half. is actually half, quite funny, so. yeah. which I forgot, I think, how funny I mean, there's some other funny stuff in the second half where... He's kind of teasing her at the zoo about who this Cal character is and everything. But yeah, and I mean, the the funniest scene is probably when he takes Elaine to the Taft Hotel and they all know him as Mr. Gladstone. And, right. Um, and Buck Henry is very funny in his kind of uh, doormat uh, or made her uh, front desk worker. Yes, type. the clerk. Yeah. yeah. So Yeah, all that stuff is funny. And I think that... Like more than the love story, what this movie I think does really well is capture that awkwardness of 
being the graduate of having graduated from college and not knowing what to do with your life and realizing you may never know what to do with your life. And that's something I think that's super influential here too. And is one of my favorite types of like 90s subgenres where I think they really, that's where it hit its height as like kind of like the indie angsty, we finished college, now what do we do with our lives type thing. There's a ton of good movies, including Kicking and Screaming by Noah Baumbach, who also obviously clearly influenced by yeah, Mike Nichols. So, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So do we want to give this one a rating? Sure. Out of uh, three affairs, five affairs with your mom? No, I'm just kidding. So, what do you want to rate it out of? Josh? I don't know. I was going to say like Mrs. Robinson's legs or something like that. Uh, I don't know. Scuba diving equipment. Oh, uh, yeah. That's another very funny scene where he's forced to show off the scuba diving equipment. For it, it, Ben's parents are very into like showing him off for their yeah. friends. Yeah. Okay. So, how about of. Uh, out of we'll rate it out of the song Mrs. Robinson because it was played sure. multiple times. It was. It gets three Mrs. Robinsons from me, and the first half was four, and the movie the first time was probably all four, but um, it really let me down in the end of Act Two. But the last ten minutes are again riveting and brilliant. Yeah, I think as I was watching this, I was like, yeah, this is four stars for me. This is really good, but I, I do think I kind of lost its way a bit there in the last. Uh, the last half or the last third. So I'm going to go with three and a half though, because I do think it, it holds together a little better than, than you do. Um, so three and a half uh, affairs or pl uh, plays of the song, Mrs. Robinson, <laughs> whatever it is, three and a half out of five. Dave, what do you say? I'm going with three and a half as well. I agree with all the criticisms you guys are you know bringing up, but uh, there's, there's so much to love in it though. There is. I mean, this is a really like, it is a great movie and an important movie. And if you haven't seen it, you should. And it's entertaining. Yeah. And it's not too long. No, so. that too. But I think, yeah, it seems like, yeah, there are things that you guys are willing to overlook that uh, for me were tougher to get past, I'd say. Right. And that's totally fair. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of The Graduate. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this premiere of our season on the films of 1967. We are talking about the box office champion, The Graduate. And I mean, we've been kind of mentioning various elements of this thus far, but this movie is insanely influential. The legacy of this movie is, is vast. Yeah, and I mentioned two of the modern filmmakers out of the many, many that have been influenced by Mike Nichols, who is a legend and maybe... Um, I don't want to say he's underrated, but maybe he doesn't get brought up in the same breath as guys like Scorsese or Spielberg. And he clearly should be and is by people who know filmmaking. Yeah. And I think he's actually having a, a bit of a resurgence yeah. in discussion. There's a book out by Mark Harris about uh, his career that has gotten a lot of attention lately. Um, which I haven't read, but um, I know you read a lot of those kinds of books. Yeah, right? I haven't so, gotten to it yet. I, I do want to watch more. I've seen a good amount of his later stuff, but I need to go back. He didn't direct a ton of movies, by the way, but I mean, he was always working and it seemed like everything he did was winning awards, whether it was Tony's or, you know, um, I mean, when Angels in America came out back when limited series weren't like the hot thing, that one, like everything, right? Every award at the Emmys, I remember. So Josh, we also got to mention that uh, this was based on a novel. We haven't we haven't mentioned that. There, right. So. And that's a weird like uh, Charles Webb is the writer who wrote this novel soon after he graduated from college, um, which, of course, is like the time for it. And he certainly captures that. But I was looking at Charles Webb had a weird ass life. Yeah, <laughs> he, he yeah. was uh, very like anti-establishment, anti-capitalism, gave away all his his earnings and deliberately was homeless and just just a fascinatingly weird existence. That he, he wrote had. a sequel called Homeschool, which um, uh, parts were published and they had always talked. Is there going to be a sequel? It seems like a very odd plot where um, Elaine and Benjamin are now married and uh, they want to homeschool their children, but uh, the school district won't let them. So they recruit Mrs. Robinson and she decides she's going to like seduce the principal or superintendent. And it just seems very uh, um, uh, not maybe the best idea. So. Yeah. yeah. And that that book, <laughs> that book, it should be said, came out in 2007. So when Charles Webb was much older and, you know, maybe had kind of lost touch with what uh, worked and um, did not get very uh, good reviews. Yeah. Though. And speaking of writers, I had already mentioned Buck Henry. He wrote this with uh, Calder Willingham Jr., very, very famous uh, screenwriter, Buck Henry, a 
pop cultural fixture as both a writer and SNL personality and uh, just kind of all over uh, the place in the world of comedy, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and back to, to go back to Mike Nichols, I think we should mention that. I mean, he is an, an EGOT winner. Yes. Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony winner. Amazing. So, I mean, certainly highly acclaimed. And uh, I don't, do you have a favorite? Well, you mentioned Closer. Is that your favorite uh, Mike I, Nichols there's, film? There's, like I said, one or two things that bother me about Closer. I want to go back and rewatch the birdcage, which I don't know how that would hold up now. That was, yeah. that was a big sensation in the nineties. And uh, I really liked it then. I like, I like primary colors of his work in the nineties. So that's up there. His last movie was uh, Charlie Wilson's war, which was a pretty good movie. Also. I thought, so. yeah, I think that and primary colors kind of go together as that, yeah. that political drama satire um, from his earlier films. I watched catch 22, like a year or so ago when the miniseries, the George Clooney miniseries came out. And it's really good. I feel like that's underrated. It was better than the Clooney miniseries as well. Yeah. With uh, starring your friend. Sir Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, wonderful. Uh, he also directed Gilda Live, the Gilda Radner one woman uh, comedy special, which is, again, hugely influential and a classic. Right. Dustin Hoffman, of course, I mean, everyone knows Dustin Hoffman went on despite his low pay for this film. He did all right there. Uh, yeah, became a huge, huge, huge star. It's still a huge star. I mean, still works. He's in his 80s. He works kind of less frequently now, but still, I mean, as recently as the, the Meyerwitz stories to mention Noah Baumbach, yeah. yeah, won two Oscars for uh, Kramer versus Kramer and Rain Man, neither of which I've seen, actually. And I've I've on this show chastised you about not seeing Kramer versus Kramer before. Uh, Rain Man, also worth watching, especially since you're a Las Vegas resident, Josh. Yeah, so. no, I should see both of those, but I just have not gotten around to that. Uh, Rain Man today, he wouldn't, I don't know. If yeah. it would work. We kind of mentioned that on the Geely stuff, but, you know, Hoffman's a little different as far as like, he does try to inhabit something. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it's better than Geely, at least. Yes, it did win Best Picture. But uh, Josh, let's talk about Anne Bancroft, who is not an EGOT winner, but an EOT winner. <laughs> <laughs> sure yeah she won emmys she won oscars and she won tonys and baftas she is one of the most awarded actresses of all time of course uh sadly died uh 2006 or so married to mel brooks who we have big fans of but uh i mean man what a career she had she did although at the same time Mrs. Robinson is the first thing that you think of with Anne Bancroft. It is. And then I think you would probably think of The Miracle Worker, which she won for before, I think, uh, Miss, she played Mrs. Robinson. I think that came out before that, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I haven't seen that. But I mean, I, I agree with you. But also, like, I think we can't underestimate with her or Mike Nichols their their work on the stage and what they brought to Broadway, how important they were. Right, right. And that was sort of more of a focus for her. I will say, as far as later stuff, I like her in... Uh, the underrated uh, version of Great Expectations by Alfonso Cuarón. Yeah, Caron, it's a good movie. She plays Miss Havisham. Uh, I'll tell you what I love, and uh, since we're talking about theater, uh, is her turn on the season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where it's all about the producers. The producers. Mm, interesting. Mm. Maybe that'll be revisited in this season. Who knows, Josh? Yeah, maybe. Catherine Ross, not nearly as well-known or successful as those other two stars, but it still works uh, periodically. She's more of a character actress. Um, I will say she's great uh, in one other major starring role where she's actually the main character in The Stepford Wives, which I feel like is kind of underrated, even though it's a very familiar like pop culture thing. People don't watch the movie. And I watched that recently to write an article on it, and she's just fantastic. At yeah, it. I remember the original being very good, the, the remake being not. Uh, yeah, not so much. And there were some weird sequels to the original that she's not in. But yeah. that, that original version of The Step for Wise is really good. Yeah, um, you had already mentioned uh, uh, Mr. Feeney there. He worked yeah. pretty constantly there. William well, Daniels, yeah. I yeah. Think, was he on the like reboot, that yeah. Girl Meets World? Yeah. yeah. And Murray Hamilton was a character actor who was in tons of stuff, movies and TV. So. Yeah, people still know him, I think, mainly as the mayor from Jaws who will not close the beaches. Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, and and he has a new uh, revitalization as a meme because yes, of everything. You that know? is true. So, he is yeah. quite the meme lord. Yeah. Um, I mean, and this movie is sort of memed. I mean, all the icon, we mentioned the shot through Mrs. Robinson's legs, lines, you know, Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. The, the final scene in the bus. I mean, there's a million parodies and homages. 
Um, I always remember Wayne's World too, which I certainly saw far before I ever saw The Graduate with Wayne uh, trying to uh, find the wedding of Cassandra played by Tia Carrere and he goes to the gas station, all that stuff you were talking about with the driving that you found a little annoying. There's a whole parody sequence of that in Wayne's World too. To me, I always think of the Simpsons episodes, right? There's two of them. There's Lisa's teacher and Lady Bouvier's wedding. And Lisa's teacher was played by Dustin Hoffman. And I remember her just writing uh, the name of the teacher in the notebook like uh, like he wrote Elaine. What about the mom, Josh? Uh, Elizabeth, what's her last name? Wilson. What do you have anything you want? I mean, to I no, I, she you know was also a character actor. I think you know worked, but I, I didn't I didn't look up anything particularly notable about her. Yeah. So camera work, you know, uh, soundtrack, uh, the way Mike Nichols works with actors, all these things just so influential. And like we said, it is probably one of the most homage and parodied and memed things out there. Yes. One movie that I, I, I thought of uh, in terms of influence, and obviously there's a million, but that I just wanted to plug um, that I thought about when I was watching this, especially with the scenes of Benjamin lying in the pool wearing his sunglasses was Risky Business, which is so underrated. And people think of that as a memed thing of Tom Cruise dancing in his underwear, but is so much darker and more complex than that. So I just want to use this chance to re- recommend Tom Risky Cruise, Business. co-star of Rain Man with Indeed Dustin he is. Yeah. The last thing I want to bring up is the patron saint of awesome movie year, Rob Reiner. Yes. Who in 2005 made a movie called Rumor Has It, which is a pseudo sequel to The Graduate that I have not seen. I was going to try and watch a bit of it before we recorded and I just didn't have time. But uh, starring Jennifer Aniston as the daughter of uh, essentially Elaine and a different man who, uh, and they're uh, the this Elaine version of the character is, is dead. But she... learns that apparently both her mother and her grandmother slept with this same man and she goes to find that man aka ben but they all have different names but the ben braddock character is played by kevin costner Mm. and the mrs robinson character is played by shirley mcclane and it is supposed to be horrible (laughs) that's an interesting idea for a movie but um sadly it's no north yeah but uh maybe uh nearly as reviled as north it yeah. sounds like well i mean i think like i said bombback and anderson are probably the two uh mike nichols disciples that i would probably closely align my tastes with do you have a filmmaker that you clearly think has been influenced by mike nichols whose work i mean woody allen we also mentioned well right and woody uh, allen was a contemporary of yeah, mike nichols but that doesn't mean you weren't influenced by him. right right well i mean as as we've established here i love noah bombach and yeah. so that would certainly be my choice there i think he's fantastic and incredibly talented and more consistent than mike nichols i mean we mentioned a lot of great mike nichols movies but he did also direct what planet are you from starring gary shanley i mean there's a whole big controversy to that if you um like i watched that gary shandling documentary and maybe mike nichols wasn't in the best place mentally as far as wanting to direct that or work with gary shandling and um that that seemed doomed to fail you know from the beginning of course noah bombach directed um mr jealousy mr jealousy is pretty good yeah he made there was a movie he made called highball that he did that's the one yeah yeah yeah. mr jealousy's all right it's not as good as his other one no 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 and i'm not trying to say that noah bombach is better than mike nichols but um i mean i i'm a huge fan of his i think me too me too dave anybody anybody that you like there mike nichols i'm gonna get shit for this but uh garden state no you're right you're 100 right and 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 eventually that'll be something that we have to revisit, you know, and yeah. I loved it when it came out and Definitely. I loved it on the it's last time I watched it today. I don't know what will happen. Yeah, I haven't seen pick. it since it came out, but I do remember loving it. But, you know, and Zach Braff was somebody at that time who was like, oh, he's going to be a big filmmaker. And that definitely did not happen. No, not yeah. quite. He's living a great life. No, he's doing yes. fine. And he has directed since then, but not anything that anybody particularly cared for and not you know, on a particular, he's, it hasn't been a, a consistent. He's got working. like $200 million in royalties and Florence Pugh as a girlfriend. I'm sure he's so doing like, fine. Yes. Know. But he's not a major filmmaker is my point. I mean, I think it's a fair trade. <laughs> <laughs> <what he's got laughs> All right. Fair enough. So on that note, that is the graduate. And that is this episode of awesome movie year. Check us out on social media. Yeah. And this is going to be a fun season. We're off to a rousing start. Josh, keep up with us on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. 
goforjason.com, built in 1967. <laughs> Perfect for this season. Before you were born, amazing. <laughs> awesomemovieyear.com still has an about section. We're at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. You can check me out at joshbellhateseverything.com, which I think maybe has some old pieces about movies from 1967 on it maybe little bits of writing keep keep grasping i'm trying <laughs> i'm trying and more recent things at josh bell hates everything on facebook and at signal bleed on twitter and check out our producer david rosen's awesome podcast piecing it together check out piecing it together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at piecing pod and don't forget about our facebook group popcorn and puzzle pieces where we of course want to hear about what 1967 movies we should be covering here on the show yeah let us know give us some feedback we're always happy to hear it i agree what is in our next episode josh oh boy we continue with the legends on this one it's our first feature and it is a film called Who's That Knocking at My Door? And it's by a guy called Martin Scorsese. Marty, Marty <laughs> Scorsese. So tune in next time for Who's That Knocking at My Door? And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. All I can tell you is they hear the voices that you keep while you're talking in your sleep. That's, isn't that somebody else? That's the knack, isn't it? Or are they sing? Sure. No, they sing My Sharona. My Sharona. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was someone else. Oh, Dave, look up who sings Talking in Your Sleep. Let's just cut all that, though. <laughs> But I still want to know who sings them. I think it is that. So. I know that song. I feel the like. Romantic? The romantic. Yeah, there you go. That's somebody else. In the neck as much. Yeah. <clears throat> I suck. That's fine. You can leave that part in, Dave. I want everyone <laughs> to know that I suck.